This is Chapter 9 of Ezra Beda's book, Being Zen, entitled Practicing with Fear. Much of the practice life is about dealing with fear. Fear tells us to close down, not to go beyond the protective outer edge of our cocoon. But by giving in to fear, we make it more solid. We strengthen our cocoon, contracting and limiting our existence. Fear has us avoiding some terrible imagined outcome. Yet the substitute life we experience by giving in to our fear is already a terrible outcome. A good friend of mine, Elliot Fintischel, wrote a science fiction novel called Please Don't Hurt Me which features extraterrestrials. Whenever they greet each other, instead of saying hello, they say, please don't hurt me. Isn't this an accurate description of the subliminal undercurrent of fear that runs our lives? Considering how much fear we all have, it's a wonder we're not already experts on this subject. But fear is one of the most slippery realms in life and in practice. The list of what we're afraid of is very long. Our most basic fears include the fear of disease, the fear of pain, the fear of losing control and being helpless, and the fear of the unknown. We may also fear the loss of loved ones and the loss of status and material security. In addition, we're afraid of being criticized and of looking foolish. We're afraid of death and maybe even more afraid of dying. The strongest fear of all may be the fear of fear itself. There are many other fears that afflict us individually, depending on how our personality has developed. These include the fear of intimacy, the fear of sex, the fear of confrontation, the fear of betrayal, the fear of loneliness, the fear of responsibility, and so on. The first stage of practicing with fear is to gradually become aware of how much fear there is in almost everything we do. The fear behind much of what we call kindness, the fear in our ambition, in our depression, and of course, in our anger. We could even define anger as inexperienced fear. Many of our personality strategies are motivated in one way or another by fear. But often, we're not aware that fear is playing a part in what we're doing. Often, fear is covered over with anger or contempt. Often we numb it out with activity or diversions. This certainly was the case for me when I was in high school and college. If someone had asked me then about fear, I might have said, well, I don't really have much fear. Fear isn't my problem. In those days, I loved to party. I loved to dance and I loved to drink. My goal was to have a good time and being quite popular, I thought I was very much on top of things. 
For some time afterward, I regarded this as my best period. But several years ago, I had a telling insight into my early relationship with fear. As I was listening to an oldie but goodie from the early 60s, I had a nice, bittersweet feeling of nostalgia. But in the middle of this nostalgia, I felt an agitation in the pit of my stomach that I recognized as anxiety. I thought, why would I have anxiety remembering my golden age when everything was supposedly great? Then I realized that I was remembering, on a cellular level, just from hearing this song, something that had been happening within me all along. Anxiety. This anxiety had probably been motivating me to frantically have fun and seek diversions, but I wasn't really aware of it then. Not until my early 20s did I start becoming aware of my fear. Also around that time, I started practicing. I quickly moved to the second stage of practicing with fear, which is to try to get rid of it. Seeing my fears and how they were constricting my life, I took the time-honored path of trying to eliminate them, to confront them, to struggle with them, to overcome them and become free such a noble and worthy enterprise. Yet because this approach is often the result of our typical upside-down way of thinking, the practice of confronting our fears in the hope of getting rid of them is usually limited and misdirected. Since I didn't know this then, I started doing one thing after another to work with my fears by conquering them. For example, I would go out on the street and beg for money, or I would go into stores and ask for food. To ask people for money or food was difficult for me because I saw myself as a well-bred, nice, responsible person who was very independent and would never ask anybody for anything. There was a lot of fear and intimidation around behaving in ways that challenged this self-image. When I was 25, I joined a Gurdjieff group in San Francisco where I was assigned a task I would never have undertaken on my own, to make up a song and sing it on Fisherman's Wharf. In the summertime on Fisherman's Wharf, there are hundreds of tourists milling around, waiting to ride on the cable cars. My task was to sing for them. In other words, I was put to purposefully make a fool of myself. I was to sing the Bob Dylan-like song that I had made up in front of all those people and then ask for money by holding out my hat. I dressed up in a hippie outfit with a black derby hat. Not only was I not a hippie, I didn't even like hippies, and I certainly didn't want to be seen as one. Even now, I can remember standing there petrified, trembling, thinking I was going to faint or throw up but I sang the song because I had willpower and because I wanted to get rid of my fear. I didn't want to be afraid. That was my motivation. So I sang my song and asked for money. Then, a little while later, I did it again. Each time I did this, it became easier. I realized I was beginning to enjoy doing it. I was having fun. What I didn't realize 
is that I was just replacing one conditioned self with another. I had replaced this fearful self with one who was now confident in this situation. Nor did I see that through this practice, I was not really working with the roots of fear. I was working with the content of fear. When you're working with fear by trying to get rid of it, the content of fear can be endless. But at that point, I didn't understand this. So for the next several years, I practiced with fear by trying to get rid of it. I decided I needed a job that would force me on a daily basis to go against the fearful patterns I want to eradicate. Having worked as a teacher and a computer programmer, I got a job as a carpenter, which was quite a leap into the unknown. For one thing, I weighed only 120 pounds and had no physical skills. I would have to go out every day into a new situation that would stretch my natural limits. The truth is, I did have to go into new and threatening situations every day for a couple of years. Then it, got, then it gradually got easier. Again, even though this was a valuable practice in other ways, it didn't address the root of fear. Instead, I was working with one content after another. I was not working with the whatness of fear. Although I was becoming stronger, I was replacing one self, a conditioned fearful self, with another self, a conditioned self that was free from fear but only in a particular situation. This approach is limited because it doesn't help us dispel the false pictures of who we are. I began the third stage of working with fear in my early 30s when I officially became a Zen student. For the most part, I put aside my direct assault on fear and instead came at it indirectly. I learned how to focus on the breath and how to develop strength in the area below the navel called the hara. I think I had the hazy, somewhat idealized notion, so typical of many meditation students, that if I sat long and hard enough, I would somehow become free from fear. After all, since fear is just illusion, why bother with it? If I simply concentrate on the breath, or the mantra, or the 10,000 bows, fear will take care of itself. Yet these practices, despite their seductive appeal and obvious effectiveness in some areas, still do little to address the nature of fear itself. I experienced another version of this third stage of working with fear several years later at a month-long intensive practice period, during which there arose a situation that produced a great deal of fear. The practice that I started doing then was to breathe the energy of my fear directly into the hara. I was trying to transform my fear, trying to turn its energy into strength. In fact, my hara became very strong in a particular way. However, even though this practice helped me get through a difficult month, I was still not really dealing with fear. I was still 
trying to get rid of it. Like the other practices, this one was limited because it did not help me see through the notion of my fear-based identity. Several months later, I became severely ill. For about eight months, I was dealing with a whole new realm of fear. As the illness progressed, with the possibility of there being no cure, my fears began to multiply. First was the fear of discomfort, which I clung to, projecting into the future the fear of escalating uncontrollable pain. Then there was a fear of being dependent on other people, as well as the fear of being isolated and alone. Beneath the layers of self-pity and depression, there was the fear of the helplessness of the loss of control. In addition, I was afraid of losing my life as I had known it. I was changing from a healthy and active person as someone who might no longer have the capacity to be physically active. My practice of bringing awareness to the breath and into the hara was of no use because I didn't have the energy or the strength to focus my attention. At this point, I spent most of my time wallowing in fear with little clarity about how to practice with it. Feeling desperate, I decided to call Joko Beck, whom I had met a few months earlier. After listening to my story, she said something like, Ezra, I know that this illness isn't pleasant and that you don't like it, but what you have to see is that it is your path. This one remark somehow turned everything right side up. Perhaps for the first time in my life, I felt willing to allow the fear in to just let it be without pushing it away. This is the beginning of the fourth stage of practicing with fear, which is to stop seeing it as the enemy or obstacle, but to willingly let it in. However, as I recovered, this process was still not clear to me. So I began to return to my former way of meditating, focusing on the breath and trying to achieve some tranquil state. This tranquility was not to be, for as I returned to a somewhat stable physical condition, intense feelings of fear began to arise. Now I was studying with Joko on a regular basis, learning what was to become a very different orientation, both to practice and to working with fear. She asked me to look at the fear as a scientist might with the curiosity of just wanting to discover what it is. The practice whenever fear arose was to ask simply, what is this? The answer always lies in the physical experience of the moment. Because the emotional agitation from fear is painful to experience, we have an aversion response. Who wants to reside with pain and discomfort? We try to escape it, overcome it, or smash through it. 
At the same time, we often add a whole new negative aspect, experiencing anger and shame at ourselves for feeling afraid. But what about seeing the fear as just another aspect of our conditioned mind? It's not that we're bad people because we experience fear. Fear is simply what is happening as a result of our conditioning. And since this is what's happening, we could decide to really look at it by asking, what is this? The what of fear, as with all emotions, has two main components, thoughts and bodily sensations. Just the willingness to stay with the fear, to be curious about the fear, is a big step from pushing it away or trying to overcome it. Cultivating the willingness to be with fear is a step toward learning the willingness to be with our life as it is. Upon asking, what is this? We begin to hear the fear-based thoughts that scream through our minds. I can't do this. What's going to happen to me? This isn't how it's supposed to be. Please stop. We hear also the voices of self-condemnation. I'll never be good enough. I'm hopeless. And so on. The practice is to see these thoughts as thoughts, even though they seem so solid. Then we drop into the bodily experience of fear with all its unpleasant sensations. Agitation in the stomach and chest, narrowing of perceptions, tightness in the shoulders, rigidity in the mouth, queasiness, weakness. By allowing ourselves to be afraid, we come to realize that this horrible feeling of dread it's just a combination of some strong physical sensations and some deeply held beliefs about ourselves. The problem is not so much these sensations and thoughts, but our resistance to feeling them. Our desire to avoid fear, our negative attachment to it, is what makes us feel so awful. This is the tight fist of fear. We hold on so tightly to avoid feeling fear that we close off our hearts. When we are willing to let the fear in, relating to it as a what instead of as me, it loses its juice. We see that even though we may feel terror, there is no real physical danger. Instead of fighting fear with panic or pushing it away, we let it in. We give up our fear of fear. Courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is and grows out of the willingness to experience fear. This is where the tight fist of fear begins to open and we reconnect with our hearts. The experience of residing in fear is never a clear-cut progression. For me, during intense periods of fear, it was a moment-by-moment -moment struggle. 
One moment I would want to run away, to push away the fear. The next moment I would want to smash through it. There would also be moments of surrender when I could say yes to it and almost embrace it. Finally, I began to see that fear is not solid. It is nothing more than strong sensations and disabling thoughts based on our conditioning. When we are willing to let fear in, which is the fourth stage of practicing with it, we discover that we can have fear, but not be afraid. When fear arises, instead of, oh no, we learn to say, here it comes again. What will it be like this time? And what happens? The solidity and power of our fear gradually dissipate. When we can willingly stay with our experience of fear without suppressing it, expressing it, wallowing in it, or judging it, our awareness becomes a wider container. Within that still container, fears, thoughts, and sensations can move through us. That's how the practice of awareness can release and transform the frozen mass of emotion thought that we call fear. As we become familiar with our fear, compassion naturally arises, lightening the whole struggle. It is here that we bring a sense of heart into our practice. When fear is experienced in the present moment, minus our beliefs and judgments about it, we will find that is rarely unbearable. In fact, when we really stay present with the physical experience of fear, we might experience a deep and pervasive peace, sensing the spaciousness and love that flower as fear transforms on its own. As the solidity of fear becomes porous, life's intrinsic essence simply flows through. The price we pay for opening up, of course, is the risk of facing exposure to some perceived danger. Although we're not always willing to pay this price, in this fourth stage of practice, our willingness to be with fear becomes stronger. We can practice with all levels of fear, from the big ones that arise when we get bad medical news, to the mid-range fear we feel when we have an unexpected expense, the small, almost unnoticed fear we experience on making an unpleasant telephone call. We start to notice more and more where we just seek comfort or escape, and we slowly learn to see each instance of fear as yet another opportunity to practice. This is the fifth stage of practicing with fear, seeing it as a signal to look at where we're stuck where we're holding ourselves back, where we can open to life. For example, can we see the degree to which fear plays a part in our achievements, where we're trying to avoid the fear of feeling unworthy? Or if we examine our relationships, can we see how often we are trying to avoid the fear of rejection or of being unappreciated or unloved? 
Can we use these situations to willingly move toward our fears, which will certainly require being open to the unknown? To really experience what fear is, we can't still simultaneously wish for it to go away. We can't even call it fear, which is just a conceptual filter between us and our experience. In the fifth stage of practicing with fear, we may choose to confront our fears. In fact, we may even seek them out, but no longer will we hope to overcome or be free from them in the conventional sense. Rather, we will aspire to simply know the truth of fear, to come to know what lies beyond our protective cocoon. Frequently, I devote one day where I commit myself to the practice of saying yes to fear. What this means is that upon feeling even a hint of anxiety, I practice moving toward the fear, not with the heaviness of my suffering, but rather with a certain lightness of heart that comes from seeing fear as nothing more than the human conditioning to which we are all subject. Without this lightness of heart, how could we ever step beyond the protective cocoon? The transformation of fear does not mean that we no longer have fearful responses. It means that we no longer believe that those responses are who we are. This is what practice is about, learning to stop believing that our deep-seated reactivity is who we are. Who we really are is much bigger than any of our fear-based conditioned responses. When we can really experience fear, we see through this false identification, perhaps even glimpsing a vaster sense of being. My own practice path with fear continues. I certainly am not free from fear, nor even from the belief that I should be free from fear. But for the most part, I no longer live from the lifelong tunnel of fear that was running me. That tunnel seems so real for so long. I don't think I ever really believed I could be free from it. Considering the length of time I've been working with this, I guess I'm a slow learner, but I've also been a persevering one. Looking back, I now see that there were no mistakes. The clouded understandings and the misdirected efforts are all a necessary part of the practice life. When fear arises for me now, along with the mind's desire for it to go away, there's also an almost instant recognition of what is going on. Do I try to let it go? Rarely. That would be just another way of trying to get rid of it, of trying to avoid my life. Instead, I breathe into the heart space, inviting the fear in with a willingness to feel its texture, its whatness. But at the same time, I know that it is not me. My heart could be pounding and my stomach feeling queasy, which are simply the conditioned responses to perceived danger. 
But there is also a lightness, a spaciousness, through which the conditioning of fear can be experienced. With awareness, the solidity of fear becomes porous. And what remains? Simply life itself, with an increasingly vast sense of being.